I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. Thanksgiving Eve, and here we are yet again covering another mass shooting in America. It's heartbreaking that more families tonight are grieving loved ones taken away by gun violence. Six were murdered. Four people were injured at Walmart last night in Chesapeake, Virginia. We now know the identities of five of them. Lorenzo Gamble, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, Randall Blevins, and Tanika Johnson. A sixth has only been identified as a 16-year-old male, 16 years old. Police say the gunman was 31-year-old employee Andre Bing, an overnight shift team leader. This is video of Bing from 2016, recorded by a former Walmart worker. Police believe Bing took his own life and was dead upon their arrival. Coworkers say Bing exhibited odd and threatening <laughs> behavior in the past. Here is one harrowing account from someone who miraculously survived the attack. He's got his hands like that. And at first it didn't even look real. It didn't register as real. It, 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 the only thing that made it real was the vibrations hitting your chest and the ringing from the gun going off. And it just kept going and going and going. And I got under the table. The sound of the droplets, the it replays and replays and replays and replays and replays of how much blood was coming off the different chairs. It was making a rhythm and it was one of the most disturbing things. I will, I think, will never let go of that. How could you let go of it? Dozens were inside Walmart when bullets started flying. Police say that the shooter had a pistol. This customer described what he was witnessing in real time on social media. That is a body of a person they just brought out in the shopping cart. Oh, God bless. I can't tell. It really looks like there are at least three or four people, bodies on the ground. This was the second mass shooting in Virginia in two weeks. Three UVA football players were killed on campus November 13th, something Governor Glenn Youngkin noted earlier. But the Republican didn't refer to them as acts of gun violence. One of the things that the First Lady and I, uh, along with the, the uh, lieutenant governor and the attorney general and, and, uh, and the General Assembly have been focused on taking up is this mental health crisis that we see ourselves in today. Youngkin, as you saw there, just said it was America's mental health crisis that needed to be addressed. President Biden, however, called for more congressional action on guns today, as he did after the attack in Colorado Saturday. That suspect accused of shooting up an LGBTQ nightclub. He appeared, they appeared in court today for the first time via video link from jail. Anderson Lee Aldrich remains held without bond. A neighbor of Aldrich tells CNN the suspect was proud of all the weapons they owned. And that is where we start tonight with another conversation about weapons in America, a subject that deeply divides our country. With us, CNN senior political analyst Kirsten Powers, also CNN contributor Stephen Kotowski, founder of The Reload, a publication that focuses on gun policy and politics in America, and former RNC communications director Doug High. Uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Um, it is 
really depressing that we are sitting here on the day before Thanksgiving, and this is the conversation that we are having yet again in this country. And, you know, Doug, I, I, I just, it's, it's, it gets to the point where you want to look away because living in it is so hard, mm -hmm. but there's five more families out there who, you know, have someone that's not going to be sitting down at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, I mean, are we so fatigued that about this that nothing can ever be done? I mean, where are we? Yeah, I think desensitization is something that we're all going through right now. And we, this happens so often and so many other horrific things happening. Police attacks on minorities, for instance, that we almost lose track of which happened which time to which person. Um, and it makes it harder, I think, collectively for there to be action. We, we had some legislation that passed last year, which I think was or earlier this year, which was hard yeah. to get done. And a lot of people didn't think it would. Clearly, it didn't do enough because the one thing we see in all of these cases is we talk about how somebody fell through the cracks and clearly there are too many cracks and they need to be fixed. So Stephen, I mean, you, you run a, a publication that you know, really focuses on gun policies, gun rights um, in America. I commend it to people who are interested in looking at this in a serious way as we as a country try to grapple um, with what this means. Um, obviously, and I think you've pointed this out, there are differences among, you know, different reasons why any of these people ended up in possession of firearms, but at the same time, it, it, it seems hard to argue. I mean, this doesn't happen in other countries, other well-off countries across the globe. Why does it happen here? I, I mean, I think that's a, a very valid question as far as the frequency of these sorts of attacks in the United States in the last couple of decades. This was not a, a common issue necessarily. These individuals going out and, and killing a lot of people decades ago in the United States. So something is has changed perhaps culturally or or, uh, or otherwise to lead to this, what we see now, um, you know, there hasn't been necessarily a huge uptick in the number of public mass uh, killings with a gun over the last, uh, since 2006, according to the Associated Press's tracker. But uh, certainly, yeah, there's a difference between America and a lot of other developed countries in terms of general levels of gun, of, of violence overall as, as well, there, is, there are significant differences, and I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. I mean, is it access to, to guns, one. or is it a cultural thing that has to do with more than just the weapons that people are... Because, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there does seem to be... I mean, I understand that this very much divides uh, people, including a lot of people who read your publication who are on the side of allowing these weapons to be legal, but the reason why you can kill so many people so fast, and, for example, the Colorado shooting, is because people here have access to assault weapons. I think it's a combination of access to guns for certain people who uh, oftentimes in these situations have exhibited uh, tendencies towards violence uh, or in the Colorado Springs shooters case committed uh, what seemed to be felonies which should have been prosecuted and made them uh, ineligible to own firearms for life had he had the, the shooter been convicted. Had they followed through. Yeah, and, and you do see that quite often in these situations. I think it's important to look at them as individual situations if you're trying to find a policy solution to the the shootings because while the outcome is horrific in, in all of these situations, the details are, are rather different. Colorado Springs was somebody who probably should have been prevented from owning guns based on his criminal history, what he had done with the bomb threat and threatening police and his mother, uh, but wasn't. Uh, he used an AR-15 and, and a handgun, whereas in wa the Walmart shooting, we don't know yet the background of, of that right. attacker, and he used uh, a handgun, 
Uh, both states had red flag laws, but they weren't implemented. We don't know exactly why for either situation. Um, you know, both had universal background checks. Neither had, uh, you know, a ban on AR-15s. There's, there's a lot that goes into, uh, I think, the details of these situations if you're trying to come up with a, a policy solution to solve these issues. Right. But, I mean, I think, Kirsten, um, as the Democrat on the table, but as, as someone who has, you know, who understands and has focused on campaigns in, in areas where Second Amendment rights are not, not always a cut and dry um, issue. I mean, people are just sick of this. People are so sick of this. And there's no will to change it beyond, I mean, obviously Chris Murphy led, as Doug noted, um, a push with Republicans in the Senate to make some changes in the wake of the Uvalde shooting. Is there a policy out there that that can change what is happening in America? Well, I mean, one of the things that have changed in the last couple decades is the assault weapons ban expired. Um, And that is something that Republicans have opposed when the Democrats have brought it up before. Um, I don't have any trouble saying that the problem is the guns. (laughs) So, you know, mentally unwell people exist everywhere. Um, and, the, and another big difference between the United States and other countries is that they actually have services for mentally unwell people. And this is another thing that Republicans always bring up whenever there's a mass shooting, but never have anything to say about any other time of the year um, while Democrats are trying to pass bills to expand mental health services, whether it's through expanding Medicaid, whether it's through Obamacare, whether it's through specific mental health services, Republicans are opposing them. So to sit here and act like there's nothing we can do, there are so many things that we could do. I grew up in a house in Alaska with dozens of guns. So it's not as though I don't understand guns or I didn't grow up around people. I mean, everybody I knew had a gun, right? Everybody hunted. Um, And most of those people would, I mean, if my father was still alive and he was sitting here, he would say, get rid of the the high power weapons that are mowing down people. You know, that's what he would say. It's not, there's no need for this. And when I was growing up, we had shotguns. You know, that's what people use. Now suddenly everybody thinks they have to be Rambo, you know, and that they have some constitutional right to be Rambo. Constitutional rights have limits. They just do. You can't yell fire in a crowded room. And the idea that we could never limit this because people want to have it because they like to go to the range and shoot it while children are getting gunned down. I'm sorry, I just, I can't accept that. I mean, uh, you know, for me, yeah, I just think that, the shootings and mass killings we've seen over the past week show that it's not just about it's banning just the past AR-15s. Week. I mean, this is like a game that you guys it's, play. It's I mean, over it's like, come over. on. I mean, just I mean, in Idaho, actually, there's this, you actually going to sit here and say to me that it's that it, that mass shooting. There's no connection between mass shootings and the fact that somebody doesn't have to reload their the, the gun that they're using. I mean, I mean, you Colorado can't seriously has, be saying that. Colorado has a ban, the, a ban on right. But if the guns weren't allowed to, if people weren't allowed to own these guns then then these it, the, people didn't have right. access to these guns. These shootings would not occur. Well, and I think that number 2006 that you raised, I think underscores that because there was a before and after for when the assault weapons ban yeah. expired. And we saw a marked change in the number of shootings in the wake of that expiration. Yeah. Stephen Gukowski, thank you very much for bringing your expertise today to the table. Kirsten and Doug are going to stick around. Ahead here, Mike Pence won't cooperate with the January 6th committee, but will the former vice president testify in the criminal investigation into the Capitol attack? The feds are asking. A prediction from former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, next.
Prosecutors at the Department of Justice want to hear from former Vice President Mike Pence. The DOJ has reached out to Pence's team. They want him to testify as part of the January 6th criminal probe. A source tells CNN that Pence is open to testifying, at least to some extent. We know the former VP has refused to talk to the House Select Committee investigating the same thing. But it appears the distinction between a legislative investigation and a criminal one could make a real difference for Pence. In quite a few recent media appearances and meetings with Republican donors, Pence has tried to thread the needle, criticizing the events of January 6th while trying to maintain some support from former President Trump's base. Testifying may make that even harder, given how much the former president has portrayed cooperation with the DOJ as a litmus test for loyalty. My next guest knows what loyalty to Trump means in this Republican Party. Former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, thanks so much for joining me, sir. Thanks, Casey. So how do you think that the, the former vice president cooperating with a special counsel, I mean, how does that change the potential 2024 landscape from a political perspective? And does it change the criminal landscape for the former president? Um, two different questions. I, I think it does change the criminal landscape a little bit. Mike Pence is a very credible guy. There's no question about it. And your introduction, you hit the, uh, the nail right on the head. He does see a difference between the January 6th committee and legislative sort of a political show trial and the investigation, a criminal investigation by the Department of Justice. Mike would take that type of inquiry extraordinarily seriously. So it would not surprise me. Uh, I'm reading some of the same things that you are, that he's indicating that he's hinting that he's going to testify or is, is willing to at least talk to the Department of Justice. That would change things, I think, uh, for Donald Trump criminally, just because Mike Pence, again, on the very, very inside, talking to the president on the day of the riots. Again, I don't know if there's any evidence yet that the president did anything criminal on that particular day. But if there is, Mike Pence might be the source of some of that evidence. So it's a big deal, I think, for the vice president of the United States to talk to the Department of Justice about the former president of the United States. Um, does it change the political landscape? Does it change the political landscape? Probably not. Um, you know, Mike is going to start threading the needle is absolutely right. And he's going to have a difficult time sort of trying to appeal to part of the Trump base and still separate himself from Donald Trump. So I don't think it changes the politics, but it may change the investigation. So Democrats in Congress, just sticking with Trump for a second, are going to get hold of, of the former president's taxes. Uh, we learned that from the Supreme Court this week. Um, I want to show people what you said while you were acting chief of staff in the White House, and I'll ask you about it. Watch. Be clear, you believe Democrats will never see the president's tax returns. Oh, no, never. No, nor should they. Keep in mind that that's an issue that was already litigated during the election. Voters knew the president could have given his tax returns. They knew that he didn't, and they elected him anyway. So what do you say now? The Supreme Court, which, of course, includes several Donald Trump nominees, unanimously yep. said, Treasury, hand him over. Yeah, and I haven't read the opinion, so I don't have the insight of, of what the, the you know, reasoning was. It's two was. lines long. Think... You don't need to read really anything. They basically said, sorry, you don't have an argument. <laughs> Treasury, hand him over. Yeah, and I still think that's a wrong decision. Keep in mind, the only reason that Congress is entitled to get that kind of thing is in its lawmaking capacity. It is not an investigative body regularly. It can do oversight. But the reason it collects information is for the purpose of making law. And I guess they convinced the Supreme Court that that's what this was, even though to the casual observer and even non-casual observer from the outside, it looks like it's part of a political investigation, not a legislative investigation. But again, not the first time I've been 
been wrong? Will it provide prob? I mean, I have no idea what's in the tax returns. Nobody does other than Trump and his team. Um, will it provide probably a, a a wealth of information that Democrats can use against Donald Trump politically? Absolutely. My guess is that's why Trump didn't want to turn it over in the first place. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that does uh, make sense. I mean, you have said that you want someone else to be the Republican nominee in 2024. But is there realistically right now anyone out there that you think is setting the stage to actually be able to beat him in a nominating contest? Sure. I think a bunch of folks could beat him head to head. I think Ron DeSantis could beat him head to head. I think uh, Tim Scott could beat him head to head. Um, In a head to head race, Donald Trump is going to, I mean, if Donald Trump pulls 35%, He's, he's going to lose in a head-to-head race. If I run against you and I get 35%, I'm going to lose. If I run against you and everybody else in the studio, I'm going to win with my 35%. And primaries are basically winner-take-all. So in a head-to-head competition, I do think he can be beat. But in a five-on-one, a six-on-one type of race, which is the way I think it's shaking out, I think he's the presumptive Republican nominee. And I think he loses in 2024 because he makes it a referendum on himself. It's not Donald Trump versus Joe Biden or whomever. It's not Republican versus Democrat. It's Donald Trump versus Donald Trump. And one of the people that could beat Donald Trump is Donald Trump. That's exactly what happened in 2020. Right. So, I mean, what's your message to all these Republicans who seem so eager to jump into the race and make this a very large field that, as you point out, gives Donald Trump potentially the strategic advantage that he needs to become the nominee? I mean, do they need to check their egos, put it aside and get out of the way to make to to pick somebody else? Yeah, I mean, there's no united anti-Trump uh, front in the in the Republican Party, nor nor should that be. If folks want to run and think they have a chance to run, they should win. My advice, excuse me, they should run. My advice to them would be: define yourself. Don't go in as a pro-Trump candidate who sort of criticizes him on January 6th. Don't go in as an anti-Trump candidate. Go in as your own man or your own woman. That's really the only chance you've got. Take Donald Trump on head to head as you being you, not as you trying to define yourself in terms of Donald Trump. I do think that there's a couple candidates who can do that. Again, DeSantis being one of them. Um, Are you ready to personally jump on board with any one of the colleagues, former colleagues of yours or people you've been hearing from? Are you are you ready to say I'll support you, Ron DeSantis, in the primary? Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm in an unusual position. I'm friends with all these folks. Mike Pompeo and I served together. Nikki Haley was my governor and served in the legislature with me. Tim Scott was in the legislature with me as a close friend. Ron DeSantis was in the house with me. Uh, Mike Pence and I were in that, you know, served together. Um, so, no, they're, they're all friends of mine. I, I wish them very well if they decide to run. My guess is every single one of those people that I just mentioned will either give a real serious look to running or, in fact, run. So it's going to be probably, again, just like it was in 2016, a very crowded Republican field. Yeah. So before I let you go, I got to ask you about what's up next for Kevin McCarthy, because you obviously founding member of the Freedom Caucus. You all basically ran John Boehner out of Washington. (laughs) Now McCarthy is facing a situation where uh, at least four or five of his members have said they don't want to vote for him to be speaker. Um, We are looking potentially at a very challenging period for him to even get the gavel, let alone actually govern the country. Um, Do you think McCarthy is going to be Speaker of the House? And can he manage the conference if he does? 
Um, yes and yes, although the second yes is a little bit more difficult because managing that group is going to be difficult. But keep in mind, it's a little bit different than it was in 2000. I think it was 15 when John Boehner left um, because we knew in the Freedom Caucus um, that there were other people who could effectively be the speaker. We thought Kevin McCarthy was one of those people at the time. It turned out that wasn't the case, but we knew Paul Ryan was a candidate. And believe it or not, this doesn't get a lot of attention. Trey Gowdy actually probably had the votes to be speaker as well if he chose to run. I'm not sure if there's anybody else in the House who could get the votes. Keep in mind, um, right now with a slim margin, let's say there's a five vote margin, any group of, of six House members could prevent Kevin McCarthy from being speaker. By the same token, Kevin McCarthy and five other of his friends could prevent anybody else from being speaker. And that's the dynamic that I think I've lost on a lot of people. Um, do I think Kevin is going to be the speaker? Yes, um, because I think he's the only one who can actually get 218 votes. Will he have to give up a lot to the uh, to the MAGA wing of the party, to the Freedom Caucus? Yes, he will, but I do think he'll be speaker, and I think he'll be as effective as anybody else will be in very trying times in the House. I guess we're, we're about to find out. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, thank you very much for your time tonight, sir. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Casey. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. And coming up, even more controversies surrounding Georgia U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker. What CNN's K-File just dug up out of his tax records. Will the revelation hurt Walker in his upcoming runoff race? That's next. Ever since Herschel Walker launched his U.S. Senate campaign in Georgia, he has faced accusations of being a carpetbagger. Sure, Walker was born and raised in the Peach State, and we have to note he was a Heisman Trophy-winning Georgia Bulldog, which is probably the most important thing to voters in this kind of bucket. But critics have pointed out that he has lived in Texas for the past two decades. Now, less than two weeks out from an election that will decide whether Democrats get a firmer grip on power in the Senate, there are new revelations tonight that may back those accusations up. According to records recently uncovered by CNN's K-File, the former football star is set to get a tax break on his Texas home, a tax break that is reportedly valued at $3 million, a tax break that is only reserved for Texas residents. Now, while this raises some legal questions clearly about whether he's following Texas tax law, Walker's bigger problem, at least in this moment, may be the political fallout just 13 days out from the runoff. Kirsten Powers and Doug High are back with me. I also want to welcome Jackie Kucinich to the conversation. Uh, Doug, you are the Republican sitting at this table. Um, does this matter? Is this, how bad is this? Yes and no. Look, camp? the homestead exemption is something that uh, so many senators have gone through. When I worked for Richard Burr in 2005, a reporter calls us and said, why is your boss getting this homestead exemption from the District of Columbia? And it was panic time for us until we realized about 15 others were at the same time, including Ted Kennedy. Um, but right, but he's not a senator yet. He doesn't yes, live in D.C. Right. yet. He's, so the that's question of, is, like, he lives in... That's part of the problem. He says he lives in Georgia. Also, we should note, I just want to briefly correct the read that we just did. It's the house is worth $3 million, not the tax rate. Continue. <laughs> but, but this gets, gets to why it's a problem. It speaks to something that, that he has a problem with voters with. And are, is it going to change anybody's mind? No. But it sure causes a distraction for a candidate who doesn't need any more distractions. I was going to say, th this is the only thing that was <laughs> facing uh, uh, Herschel Walker and his quest for the Senate. Perhaps it would have more of an impact. But there is just so much to unpack that had between you know, abuse allegations, like allegations of paying for abortions, all of the things that Herschel Walker has dealt with this entire campaign. 
it, it is a fairness issue when we talk about a tax exemption that you might, may or may not, you know, should or should not be getting. But I, but at this stage of the game where the margins are going to be so thin, I do wonder um, if, if that's going to move the needle. So, Kirsten, I mean, if you're the if you're running the the Walker campaign or the Warnock campaign, I mean, who would you rather be right now? Because I mean, to Jackie's point, this is one thing of many that has dogged Herschel Walker's campaign to the point where he ran far behind the Republican gubernatorial nominee, Brian Kemp. I mean, if he had kept up with him in the election yeah. just a couple weeks ago, he would be the senator-elect right now. He's not because there were a lot of Republicans who just couldn't stomach voting for him. This does seem like yet another thing. I mean, when you're talking about a turnout base election where people are just mm -hmm. like, really? Again? Yeah. But well, maybe, maybe that analysis is off. What's no, I think that's right because I think the biggest issue is does this you know, does it depress turnout is one question. We won't know the answer until after people vote. But I think we would be safe in saying it's not going to enthuse people, right? right? So it's not <laughs> going to lead people who are kind of like already not really sure. And then this, and it kind of just adds to the list of things that makes makes them not excited. And so you're not going to have the Republicans that were turning out to vote for Kemp turning out necessarily for a special election, right? Because they're not, you have to be pretty enthusiastic to be voting in a special election. So I think that it's just another data point against him, and that's not what he needs right now. Kemp himself has just found an enthusiasm for yeah. Walker <laughs> after not having, not having so found. much. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh, look at that. After not having campaigned with him the entire uh, 2022 election. Well, and I was going to ask you about that too, Doug, and I don't, I don't know if we have any of the pictures from the recent, I was amused that there was a Fox News interview that had Walker, Cruz, and Lindsey Graham in a three-box yeah. <laughs> together, um, which is, you know, as someone who works on television, it can be awkward to be in a two-box, let alone a... This is, there this is. is awkward, yeah. yeah there <laughs> it is, right? And they're there, like, Cruz is talking, he's sitting there in the middle. It's um, cozy. Is this, like, what's the strategy for Cruz and, and, and Graham here to go down? I mean, I get there, you know, they're trying to do what they can to help him win, but, I, I mean, is this... What's, what's the plan here? This is a whole lot of Republican Senate conference internal politicking. You know, we've seen this play out over the past couple of weeks uh, with the NRSC, sometimes fighting with, with Team McConnell. And McConnell's team has put a lot of money in on this. But everybody wants to be next to Herschel to demonstrate we're doing what we can to build this, uh, you know, if not majority, uh, at least save it to get from from getting to 51, where Democrats will have a lot more leverage. But how on would committees. them being on TV send that message? It's all about I appearances. Mean, well, but it seems like the message they're sending is, don't worry, he's just going to do what we say, right? It's like we're always by his side. Like, we never leave his side to the point that we... I mean, who has ever done this? What, what person running for the Senate has ever sat... Never gone chaperoned on television. But I, I do, I've never <laughs> seen it be. I, I cannot recall seeing it before. But to yeah. that point, I think this is about. I mean, it's never happened, but yeah. I can't remember it. Graham and Cruz and their positioning in within exactly. the Republican conference wow. as okay. who is who is doing the most to try yeah. to yes. call Herschel Walker yeah. over the finish line and the goalpost. You could but say. It, yes. it does the goal, demonstrate the goalpost, if you will, to, to Kirsten's point. <laughs> The challenge, the unique challenges of the Herschel Walker candidacy that he is sitting on Fox News with two senators next to him. I, let me play a little bit of what Cruz had to say. We, we saw him talking, but let's let's listen to the argument that he's making for why Georgia voters uh, should make a point to get out and, and vote for Walker in the runoff. Chuck Schumer has told you he doesn't want Herschel Walker to win. He doesn't want a 50-50 Senate. Why is that? Because in a 50-50 Senate, the committees are even, which slows him down. If Raphael Warnock wins, Schumer can expedite confirming radical judges to take away your free speech rights, your religious liberty rights, your Second Amendment rights. 
So what he's talking about basically, and, and Doug alluded to this, is that there is actually a significant difference between a 50-50 Senate where the parties have to work together to figure out how to control key committees and make critical decisions, and a 51-49 Senate where Democrats don't have to bother uh, working with Republicans on any of that. And I mean, Kirsten, this is the argument that we're hearing from Republicans, and I think we're going to hear it throughout 2024, is talking about your individual rights. I mean, and Democrats, I think, actually did a the results of the midterm show, they did a pretty good job flipping that argument on its head, trying to say to people, especially around things like abortion, it's actually Republicans who want to take that away. Uh, but is that what this is about at the end of the day? Well, I mean, I think if you supported individual rights, you would support women's right to control their bodies. I mean, that seems pretty basic. So I don't, I don't think it's a great argument, the idea that Democrats are somehow trying to take away your individual rights when they're the ones that are out making sure that women can make decisions about literally what happens to their own body and not be barred from going to another state or told what kind of medications they can receive in the mail. And so, you know, I think that that's, I just, I don't think that that's an argument that's going to resonate with anybody outside of the people that are already voting for Republicans. One abortion, as we know, has already um, played a significant significant role um, across the country in this race in particular, especially because the Georgia Supreme Court just reinstated a six-week mm -hmm. ban. Um, in the state of Georgia. All right, Kirsten Powers, Jackie Kucinich, Doug High, thank you guys all for being here on this Thanksgiving Eve. I especially mm -hmm. appreciate you. your time. Meanwhile, Taylor Swift is furious at Ticketmaster. She is not alone. I'm pretty sure all the rest of us are also after the debacle over fans trying to buy seats for her new concert tour. We've got a member of Congress here who will not shake it off when it comes to questions over whether the behemoth of ticket sales deserves its own breakup. That's next. Taylor Swift struggles with herself in the lead single to her new album. It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, at tea. But even though she's got the number one album in the country, the self-proclaimed anti-hero has some new bad blood. After all, the same singer who accuses congressmen of covert narcissism has them lining up to join her in her fight against the owner of Ticketmaster. A Senate antitrust panel will hold a hearing, and the Department of Justice is investigating after the debacle that was Swift's concert ticket sales last week. Between site crashes, people waiting online for hours, and absolutely outrageous prices, Swifties, as her fans are known, are demanding a hard look at the 2010 merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation. That includes my next guest, Democratic Congressman David Cicilline. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us tonight. My pleasure. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, it's an unusual topic, uh, but 50 members of the House did send the DOJ a letter way back in 2010, and they said Live Nation and Ticketmaster never, ever, ever should have gotten together in the first place. Um, but the department under Obama at the time approved the merger anyway. Why do you think pressure from Congress could have a different effect this time? Well, you are absolutely right. The merger should never have happened. In fact, we wrote back in April of last year, asking the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission to look again at this transaction. Taken together, Live Nation um, and uh, Ticketmaster control over 80% of the tickets in large venues across the country. That's a monopoly. And what has it what it has produced is what monopolies always produce, higher prices, 
less quality experience for consumers, less compensation for artists. So the Department of Justice really has to look at this transaction and look at the consent decree that was entered into after the transaction to try to protect competition, impose additional conditions to really restore competition. And if they can't do that, they'll look at unwinding the transaction because it should have never happened in the first place. Well, the reality, too, though, is that the complaints didn't start with the Swifties. I mean, what's what's right. the difference here between this artist, this fan base that, I mean, I guess it's just blown up so so enormously. But, I mean, what do you think is the difference between now and when there have been other problems with other artists? Well, I mean, there have been a number of examples where this uh, merger has produced terrible consumer uh, experiences, much higher prices, degraded the quality of the consumer experience, and also less compensation for artists. Adele was another big concert where that happened. But there have been many examples. And look, this is a problem all throughout our economy. Um, when you have this kind of concentration of the market, um, they become monopolists and, or near monopolists, and they don't have any incentive to innovate. They don't have. They get lazy. They don't have any incentive to worry about doing things well, to compete successfully, and they also can increase prices. So there's a reason that monopolies are bad for consumers and workers in our economy and why competition is so important. And the absence of competition produces the results that we've seen time and again with this merger. And it's, it's, it's occurring really all throughout the economy. We're seeing more and more consolidation in healthcare and agriculture and tech. And it's good that we have a president now that is the most pro-competition president in my lifetime. And he has great people in the administration like Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor and Tim Wu, who have been really strong yeah. advocates, obviously, for strong competition policy. But we need to see action. This is just the most recent example of that kind of concentration. Yeah, well, I mean, and we saw we did see an example of the difference that you, you point to in the recent um, the, the decision not to allow the two major publishing houses to merge. Um, but back in 2019, you mentioned that consent decree, which of course sets the rules for how these, these companies have to follow after they merge. In 2019, DOJ found that Live Nation, the overall company, broke the rules of the merger, but they didn't really do anything about it. They just extended rules that were already in place. Now, Live Nation claims that they follow them now. Um, why did they not, why did they kind of punt it back in 2019 and are you confident that DOJ will act differently this time? I am confident that DOJ will act differently this time, mostly because of the leadership of the president and of Jonathan Cantor. But look, we didn't have great antitrust enforcement, uh, both in Republican and Democratic administrations, for a very long time. And, uh, you know, as a result, we've seen tremendous concentration in our economy. We've seen mergers like this one, which should never have happened. I think that time is over. We have a president who understands what the impact of this kind of concentration is on working families and our, on our economy. Uh, we have members of the administration who have a lifetime commitment to this work. And so I think we're in a very different place. The Congress of the United States, my committee in the House, Senator Klobuchar's committee in the Senate, is actively working on these issues. So antitrust is back. Congress is going to continue to play a much bigger role. But I think we have an administration that is prepared to really do all that is necessary to restore competition, not only here, but all throughout our economy. And I think that's what's different today than it was maybe five or 10 years ago. All right, Congressman David Cicilline, thanks very much for being with us tonight, sir. I really appreciate Thank your you. time. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. And to that point, thanks. we have something of a palate cleanser coming up. One of America's best chefs will join us with a different way to think about Thanksgiving, from the meal to the memories that we make. A celebration of shared culture, next.
As we head into this holiday season, we wanted to cap off tonight with a bit of what brings us together in America. Thanksgiving can stir up some nerves about our differences, political or otherwise, as we gather around a communal table. But our next guest says he relishes in the sharing of cultures that can be brought out by the holiday. With me now is award-winning restaurateur and chef Marcus Samuelson. Marcus, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, I just brined the turkey with my son, and we, we're ready to go for tomorrow. So. <laughs> That's great. My husband actually did ours last night and was turning it with my son uh, today, um, which is, again, something that we're all you know sharing. It's the experience that brings us together. I mean, you were born in Ethiopia, and you were adopted by Swedish parents. Then you moved to the United States, and you talk publicly so often about how important it is to share and celebrate different cultures and how important that's been in your personal and professional life. How does that define what Thanksgiving means to you? And what bigger message does it send in these divided times? Well, first of all, I, I, I love Thanksgiving. I think it's an amazing holiday, uh, you know, because it, it's truly for everyone. And we all need in this hectic time a moment to actually give thanks and cook and eat and sit around the dinner table and and hopefully enjoy it and laugh a little bit, right? Because it's stressful. We just came out of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and so on. So it's, it's, it's really tough times out there for, for, for a lot of people, for a lot of us. So I just feel for, for mentally, mental health and everything, Thanksgiving, enjoying each other, super, super important. And then it's also an opportunity to celebrate your culture. One of the most beautiful things with America is that we are so multicultural, right? So in my, my, on my Thanksgiving table tomorrow, yes, there will be turkey, but there will also be some wonderful dorawats from Ethiopia, and there will also be some gravlax from, a, yeah, there will also be some gravlax from Sweden, right? So There's an opportunity to really celebrate your culture. Yeah, no, and, and, and to share food traditions and have other people bring things uh, to the table uh, that's different. I mean, I actually feel we here in Washington, D.C., we have such a rich uh, culture of Ethiopian food yeah. because there are so many people. So that's not something that I was ever exposed to as a child, but something that I that I eat uh, regularly now, um, which I which I really enjoy. Um, but you know, here's here's one of the challenges in in these tense times. A lot of people are finding it really hard to afford to buy the food that they need for a big Thanksgiving feast at home. And in fact, some people are deciding to go to restaurants for the big meals. What what we understand. Uh, because, I mean, just look at that, you know, 24%, the turkey prices are, are way up. Uh, restaurant inflation's actually been a little bit lower than some of these groceries. Um, are you expecting more traffic at your restaurants? I mean, you've been an activist for a long time against mm -hmm. hunger and food insecurity. What's your take on this? Well, it is very difficult times. And, you know, the hospitality community, most restaurants, uh, most of my chef friends, we all participate in different charities in terms of turkey giveouts and so on. Um, my new restaurant, Harvin Mar, because it's brand new, we decided to be close to Thanksgiving because I wanted to give the staff actually a chance to be with their with their families. On Red Rooster, we're open and we, we're fully booked. And yes, it is tough times. Uh, but I do think a moment like this at Thanksgiving is the, whether you eat at home, whether you eat at a friend's house, whether you go to a restaurant, it is a moment where you, we can give thanks because we all have something to be super grateful for. Um, of course, pricing has hit restaurants as well, and, and we, we, we're going through it. But I do think this is one of these days that we should enjoy it, uh, whether you're going to watch the World Cup or you're going to watch uh, Dallas, uh, a little bit of football, American football. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it is an interesting um, uh, cultural choice this year. Uh, mm -hmm. What we're going to watch on TV, I mean, I know historically we always, uh, I've got family from Detroit, so we typically watch the Lions yeah. lose. Uh, but uh, you are, I mean, we know that you're a soccer fan. I mean, who, I assume you're going to be watching the World Cup. Who are you rooting for? I mean, Team, team USA I over here, but that, I mean, not till Friday, but yeah. Who I do mean, you got? first of all, I'm, I'm very impressed that you know so much about Ethiopia food. So you now, uh, the Ethiopian <laughs> community in DC are going to be very, very impressed by that. So Kisto is my go-to, I have to say. Oh my God. It's my now absolute you favorite. The regional Ethiopia food. Stop <laughs> while you're at it. Now you're doing you so much. This is great. Uh, I'm definitely going to watch the World Cup. The American kids did great. You know, I thought, you know, they almost won the game, but I, I think that's actually going to go to the second round. I'm very excited about it. Um, and then uh, yeah, I think Brazil is probably the team to be, but World Cup is always a bunch of upsets, right? Isn't it great when Japan beats Germany or, or, or you, you know, you have Saudi Arabia beating Argentina with a great Leo Messi. I mean, this is why you watch the World Cup, right? And this year we're going to do it by eating turkey. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I guess it's fitting that the U.S. men's team is actually in the World Cup this year. <laughs> Yes, but anyway, yes, yes. <laughs> well, uh, Chef Marcus Samuelson, uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us tonight and for sharing a little bit of the, the warmth and joy um, that you bring uh, to celebrating this tradition. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours as well. Thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues now with Allison Camerata. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.